Welcome to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. Glad you could join me. I hope this is an enlightening and uh, informational session today. Learn a lot about South Dakota pheasant hunting and maybe some of the prairie grouse as well. From an expert, Steve Grouseman Grossman will be joining us. Talk about pheasants. Talk about prairie grouse and maybe even some forest grouse. He guides up there as well. So a lot to learn from this guy who's been around the block a few times. I might get to a little chucker hunt I did. The things I learned there about stealth. We'll learn from you what you learned last week out there in the field in the forest. You'll be sharing some of that from our Facebook pages. And the Upland Nation puzzler and the accompanying prize, of course. I'll be announcing our first winner and a new prize, so stick around for all of that. Made possible in large part by my good friends at Roughland Performance Kennels, Happy Jack Dog Care Products, the Huron, South Dakota Ringneck Nation, Pointer Shotguns, and Dr. Tim's Natural Performance Dog Food. And, of course, Sage and Breaker gun care products crafted at the highest caliber. Fred Bohm is traveling the country, testing out all his products, of course, and experiencing, well, the nomad lifestyle for a while. So if you want to learn more about that and all their great products, watch some of the incredible videos on how to do this stuff the right way. If you want to clean your gun, no matter what type of gun it is, Fred's got a video, Sage and breaker.com and we're still welcoming our newest sponsor pointer shotguns they're imported by the good folks in reno nevada at legacy sports been working with them over the years for many many different projects they've got some pretty cool stuff coming out now a full line of over and under and semi-automatic shotguns Um, depending on what your needs are, where you are in your shotgunning career, they've got something for you. If you're upgrading, you're going to your first over and under, you got a kid that wants to start in this world. And then on top of everything else, they're now Cerakoting their guns in three different colors. It's pretty cool. And you will be the only guy in the hunt with the coolest golden gun or one of the other colors. Learn more at LegacySports.com. LegacySports.com. Good. You know, I love talking with this guy, number one, because he knows so damn much. Number two, he's a great guy. Anybody who's ever worked with him as a client or in any other respect, uh, just speaks so highly of him. Welcoming back to the Upland Nation podcast, Steve, Steve Grouseman Grossman. Steve, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Scott. It's good to be with you. Um, you know, uh, we were talking off mic just a moment ago about uh, where you are in your, in your season, and, and we'll get to that first because... You know, I'm breathing deep for you. You're, to a great degree, you're winding down along, and, you know, I've got it a little bit. It's hard work, so I bet you're feeling pretty darn good about now. It is. a. It's It's kind of like you can see the finish line, and it feels pretty good. Uh, you know, we started September 3rd, and uh, I'll finish up with uh, the lion's share of all my guiding uh, next week, late next week, and uh, 
maybe a trip or two yet in December, but for the most part, uh, this will finish me up. You, um, and not only do you guide a lot, uh, for that intense period, but you're doing it in two different states for two different birds and then a few other bonus birds here and there. Uh, let's work backwards in your season. You're currently in South Dakota. Give me the, give me the story on where you are, what the name of the place is and, and what you've been up to there. Well, I'm out in, uh, in the, uh, uh, southwest of Pier uh, at, a, at a lodge working with a group of people for uh, my last finishing up my pheasant hunts and for the lion's share most people don't come to me for pheasant they come to me for sharp tail and Hungarian excuse me sharp tail and prairie chickens out here on the prairie uh, most of my guys you know we run a very traditional style of bird hunt so we're not in big groups and we don't have uh you know, buses or vans or anything to pick up hunters. It's uh, two guns and a guide, and uh, off we go. And uh, so it's, it's far more of a traditional type of a hunt. And, you know, it's it's great to see so many people still coming to South Dakota, and the, the pheasant numbers are good, even with the drought uh, that, that came through this last summer. They're still good pheasant numbers. So it's, uh, you know, it's it's – it's great to see new people getting out into the field and, and enjoying the hunting and the outdoors and, and even running dogs and, and so many children and, uh, and women getting out in the field. It's great to see. Well, we'll get to some of that because I'm a little bit curious. I've worked with and in South Dakota a lot over the years, but first let's just get to the, let's start on a real high point here in the last week or two, besides talking with me, what's been the highlight of your week (laughs) (laughs) the highlight in the week is seeing new hunters shoot a few birds and really get hooked on the whole sport and and what it's all about it's it's that and it's it's learning how to hunt properly to begin with how to be safe in the field with guns and and in gun management and and how you carry your gun when you do hunt together with and with dogs, you know, so you always see old adages, you see plenty of clear blue sky between a, a low flying bird and a, and a dog that's in the field. And, and so when you see people who are hunting their first year handle that and, and acknowledge what you, and are, are, are a good student and acknowledge what you're, you're explaining to them and it all comes together, that's the high point. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great getting together with old clients and people. It's like a family reunion, you know, for about a 90-day period. And uh, that's always wonderful. But it is it's a great deal to be able to see someone new uh, really geared to grasp of the sport and enjoy it that way. You know, you're a lot like me and a lot like my good friend Tom Fumarello, who was on a few weeks ago. And, and some of the other folks out there, including most of the leaders in the industry uh, you know i ask the same question and and they give me an answer like yours which basically boils down to this i've killed enough birds i've walked enough miles my i the the thing that puts my the hair on the back of my neck up is watching other people learn this stuff and helping them learn more about it is that a safe assumption for you as well it is about six years ago you know i've I've been in this since 79 1979 and after all that period of time i just i don't need to shoot another bird i enjoy it and it's i I like eating game there's no question about that but i get more enjoyment anymore out of photographing the entire hunt so i've kind of gone off the deep end and and bought some nice camera gear with help of a lot of 
wonderful wildlife photographers and people that I've worked with over the years. And so they've kind of coached me and helped me. And I get more enjoyment out of photographing the hunt because then I can give the whole disc drive to the hunters when the hunt is over and they can take their whole hunt home with them. And that's, I, I get more fun out of that. It's more exciting to me at the end of the day to see just what I capture on film. And, and so it, it's, it's not about killing. That's for sure. You uh, start the season out there. Well, wait a minute. I shouldn't assume that because uh, you're also a very well-known rough grouse and woodcock guide. So, so walk me through your season. That'll get me placed on the map in the right places. And then I'm going to ask you some more fundamental questions so that we can learn a little bit more from the master. Where do you start? Where do you go next? Where do you go next? And how many millions of miles do you put on your truck? <laughs> Well, you know what? It's 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 been a good truck, and I I I, I gotta love my 350 Super Duty. So I, I it's it's he and I get along. We go everywhere together. Oh, that's as well great. as the dogs that ride in the some of my uh, my old hunters. They call it the slave ship with my dog box <laughs> on the back, and they take a picture of the dogs being loaded and back on the slave ship. But yeah. I start in uh, September out here in South Dakota with uh, shooting uh, hunting sharp tails and and prairie chicken and from there you know i've got it's what's so great is like i had mentioned so many wonderful people and clients and guests and friends who who hunted with me for years they come out and hunt with both here in south dakota and with me in minnesota so that's a great it, it just it's it's a kind of like a reunion it's a harvest in the fall and so i'm i'm out here in south dakota until late september and then i head back to minnesota and uh my son Travis has has done a great job uh, helping out and, and taking the taking the slack up with the some of the earlier grouse hunts in Minnesota while I'm still out west, and then I'm with uh, with him and and uh, our great staff through the rest of October in Minnesota, and then I come back out for a couple weeks in uh, November, late October, early November in in South Dakota, and that pretty well finishes me up. I bet it does. Finishes you up, rings you out, and and puts you back on the shelf. And you probably need that rest by then. So, um, for on behalf of all of us who've ever worked with a pro guide, we thank you for your hard work. And you well, know the the other thing, and I I'm just gonna say it because uh, you guys are way too humble for this. You know, by the time you show up, pick up a client and go hunting, um, you've already worked that morning. And then when you drop them off again. You go back to work. People don't understand. There's there's pre and post hunt stuff. What are you doing in the morning and late afternoon that we never see? Well, it's getting dogs put up, you know, and making sure they're in good shape, uh, especially, you know, to, to check them over so there's not any, uh, you know, they're a huge part of the hunt. They are the hunt. And so, you know, to check, we don't have weed seeds in the eyes. We don't have uh, branches and sticks poking dogs and, and causing issues that way. Uh, out here in the prairie, it's it, at times it's pulling burrs from their from their coats. You know, I run a English setters and, and a Labrador when I'm out here in the prairie, and so the setters at times, you know, they get all bunched up with. Even though we shave them, but they'll get a few uh, cockaburs under their armpits and under their legs, etc. And so we clean those out and get to get them ready and get them fed and tucked in for the night. And uh, then in the morning, it's getting things loaded, putting coolers, water, and, and uh, sodas and this, whatever we need in the coolers and, and getting things ready for a start of the day and and then joining the, the hunters for a breakfast with a smile on your face and greeting the day and and 
letting them know that it's like you're the most important person you are. They, this, this there, and and they are because when when our hunters come in with us, it is a hundred percent their day. It's not my day. It's not my other guide's day. It is their day, and so the whole hunt is based on what they want and and their ability and and uh, it's just it's their day. So we we do everything we can to uh, to accommodate that and. So far, so good. You know, I, um, I I feel so bad. I did a pretty intense chucker hunt I'm going to talk about later in the podcast, actually. Short but intense. And, uh, you know, thought I did a pretty good job after the second day inspecting my dog. But son of a gun, if not two days later, I find a little scab on his left back leg and i thought why didn't i find that when i had him up on the tailgate at the end of that day is there anything in particular you can do to help us do a better job of inspecting our dogs at the end of a hunt something that maybe we haven't thought about you know i it 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 happens to everybody someone's going to miss something uh i guess you know i'll feel for for if there's any pain if there's any stiffness, if there's anything that comes up out of the ordinary, I'll, I'll look for that. I'll squeeze paws, and if there's like something may have gotten up between the pads, whether it's a cockaburr or a sandbur or something of that nature. Uh, but you know, other than that, uh, these dogs are warriors, and uh, so you know, they. And in some instances, the, the difficult thing can be when you have a very aggressive, high-powered dog that really you're not going to show anywhere uh yeah it's got to be something really difficult that uh that you don't pick up on and years ago it happened to me i had a, a really hard going female setter and and at, at what point it happened i have no idea but she was on the stakeout chain and i looked at her from a different angle and she had like a small hematoma on her chest and so i investigated it and it was starting to so i took her to the vet and and we've we uh, put her on antibiotics, and that was when I had a place in southern Kansas. So a couple of days later, I'm back from Minnesota, and it hadn't gotten any better. So I took her into the vet, and they kept her overnight and did surgery on her, and they pulled a, a stick oh, out of her chest that was about the size of a, a length of a, of a small pencil, about the diameter of a pencil. Ugh. And she showed no there was there was zero indication that she was hurting zero indication of anything until i saw her at an angle the hunting season had been done for you know for for about three weeks and long story short uh she came out of it just fine but what i'm getting at is some of those dogs that go so hard they won't show their wear and tear and and so at times there was there was no entrance wound there was no anything that indicated that she was hurting except then i saw that hematoma and we got her taken care of. So it's just, if, if you happen to have a hard one, it's one of those things you maybe take a little extra care, especially yeah. when the hunt is over. Yeah. You know, a lot of that stuff, you're right. You, you, you find it, but you find it too late, but the best, yeah. best way to avoid the too lateness is, is to just be real intense. I got an, I got a, a disadvantage in that I'm colorblind. I got dark colored dogs almost all the time. I can't see blood on a brown coat. So, sure. Uh, so you know what I ought to do is have somebody else in the hunt take a look at my dogs for me. I'll buy them a beer and and they do the inspection. <laughs> um, well, so, whatever you help wherever that be the thing. You get the dog in the tailgate and 
and just uh, can you give me a little help and, yeah. and uh, look some of this over for me and so uh, whatever works yeah so let's let's take your season from the very beginning because um gosh even the last time you and i talked i was in the middle of my ongoing study of sharp-tailed grouse i've done a little bit more field work since uh, you and i talked last and i'm still intrigued with these birds and number one that the country they're in because it's way easier than chucker hunting but um, beyond that they're just mystifying to me in other ways have you, uh, you know, if you wanted to describe some of the, the kind of the tricky stuff that sharp tails will do to you as a hunter, um, have you ever seen them do anything that, that surprises you? You know, I, it, yes and no. I mean, it, it does. A bird that's typically going to be down in a, in a draw or heavier draw covers too heavy and they like to be where they can see. And, and at times about when you, when we're crossing the low bottom, and you kind of let your guard down. All of a sudden, you got birds going, and and uh, you know that can be. They don't read the books. You know we all have our understanding and methods of how we hunt them and what we're looking for. But you know we're playing on their turf <clears throat> and in their home areas, and uh, you know they they just they are where they are, and, and it's kind of an old cliche, but just where you're always on guard. You just never know a sharp tail. I can tell you that, you know, we had a big drought out here uh, in South Dakota. It was all summer, and uh, Minnesota as well, both the Dakotas and the Midwest, actually. But the the, uh, the sharp tail uh, really came through in good shape, and, and so we had a good fall. The most encouraging thing about it was we did not harvest an old bird at all, period. Wow. So everything we harvested were, uh, were young were birds of the year, young birds. So that's... That's an incredible, it's a wonderful thing because we're going to have a, there's going to be a big bunch of birds going into the breeding season. If the winter's nice, it should be just uh, another great year. Where, you know, if you had to narrow it down to two or three kinds of habitat for a sharp tail, what, what would you, what would you put on your list? Well, they like short prairie to begin with. That's one. And in that short prairie, if I can find rose hips, that's a, that's a go-to for me along with buffalo berry snowberry and just pockets of uh, maybe th- uh, palm thickets and different things which become a destination for those birds as they fly into the prairie to, uh, to come to roost yeah so plum thickets uh, uh buffalo berry snowberry you know the other th- funny part is i have found them depending on uh, what time of the season it is looking for shade as much as anything has that been a phenomenon you've noticed as well Absolutely, yeah. Whether it's a snuff, snowberry or buffalo berry or plum thickets, uh, shade becomes a huge part of the thing. Where uh, sharp-tailed don't like to be warm, yeah. And uh, so wherever they can get shade, if it gets to be that warm, what we would typically do is is hunt. Uh, you know, once once we see birds in the morning coming off the roadsides, getting grit, and they will start working their way back into the cover. We would hunt those edges in the morning, but by midday, if we were still hunting, then it was always something that gave us a little shade. Yes, without question. You know, the other thing that I, I learned, uh, luckily not the hard way last time I was out in Montana doing this, was you can walk through a field or through a, you know, a swale or anything. It doesn't matter. You walk through it. You think you covered it well. Sometimes the smartest thing we did was turn around and go right back through it the other direction. Do you do you ever see them kind kind of acting like pheasants, kind of sneaking out behind you and things like that? 
at times we do. And we had a we had an incident, incident this uh, this fall where there was again I had mentioned they were in the there was a, a kind of a bowl, and we worked around the top side of this bowl, and found nothing. So we loaded the dogs and we were going to drive out of that out of that pasture. And in the middle of that bowl, down in the bottom of that bowl, we're driving along, and there's a bird running down the truck track. So we stopped, put young dogs on it, and we were able to play some some work with the young dog. But how we missed those birds, we had to be within, you know what it's like if the dog is is 20 yards upwind of the dog, up, upwind of the birds, and they can't smell them. The birds are gutsy. You walk by them, and... and even with the grouse and woodcock, all game birds will, will at some point will catch you with your pants down. Yeah, you know it's hard to walk with them down like that, but I've, I've <laughs> but I, I'm, get, I'm getting better at it. Uh, let let's uh, let's uh, get in the F three fifty, load up the dogs, head for Minnesota. Uh, how was your grouse season? It was better than I expected. Even with the the lack of water in the woods, we had to carry a lot of water for the dogs. Uh, we had a great uh, early season was was way better than expected. Early meaning that first part of October, uh, the bird numbers were good, both grouse and woodcock, and uh, you know we had some some great dog work out of them, and it it just it was a it was a very welcomed. I was not expecting that, and so it was it was a good fall. You're listening to the Upland Nation podcast. I'm Scott Linden. That's Steve Grouseman Grossman. We have just transitioned from one time zone. Well, it, technically, I guess it is the same time zone s- certain times a year, but, uh, uh, well, maybe not. You're in, yeah. Anyway, you're, we're now in Minnesota. What's the name of the lodge up there again? The Grouse Lodge. Okay. Moran. The Grouse Lodge. And you've got a lot of history down there, don't you? There is a ton of history. Yeah. It's, uh, we have one, uh, one client that comes in and he calls it the, uh, Sanctum Santorum. Mm-hmm. 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 So it's it's a it's a in his words it's his holy place. Well, it's a it's a there's the story's gone forever. I I understand that I was in that place my my version of that place uh, up until Monday morning of this week and uh, I know exactly how he feels and it, it it is kind of a great feeling to have a place like that you can you can run to when you need to. Um, any anything interesting happened during your rough grouse season? Uh, you know, it was, it was, it's kind of like a safe plane landing. It was, everything was uneventful, which is good. So we had a, it was a good fall. Uh, really nothing out of the ordinary, you know, that, uh, that, uh, took place. And, uh, so no, it was, uh, I, I wish I could give you something, some, some juicy tidbit, but I, I can't. Well, you can give me any number of tidbits, uh, <laughs> juicy or not, but here's one for you. And, uh, and this may end up somewhere else as well. I'll warn you about that in advance, but, uh, you know, if you're working with dogs on the prairie and then you're bringing them back to Minnesota to work, uh, work the, uh, the rough grouse woods, um, what do you do to adjust them or do they adjust themselves? You know, how do we, how do we adapt our, if we're a one person dog, uh, one dog person, Hunter, uh, can can we do anything to help that dog adjust to the tighter quarters? No, you really can't. And I, the reason I say that is is they dogs have got their own kind of security or their own range or their own kind of their own zone, and where they're comfortable with. Uh, 
with with us, I guess if there's if there's any one thing that you know that especially in the both on the prairie and in the grouse woods, is that with with prairie birds early season, you know we're we're very strict on our manners with our dogs. So if a bird should blow out of the outside edge of a flock or a covey of birds, the stop to flush is so important because then the dog stops, then the hunters can walk on through and foot flush any other birds that are left on the ground. And this really is the same comes through to play in the grouse woods. They hear a bird go out, the dog stops or a woodcock blows out, the wind is wrong, they're a victim of circumstances. So the stop to flush is so important. But the dogs really have kind of their own comfort zone where they're comfortable with. And you as a handler, I mean, if, if you like a dog to, uh, to be really short in the woods, then you can shorten them up as you need to, uh, whether it be a lot of people are using uh, uh, electricity to, uh, or an electric collar with either a, a buzzer or a beeper or a vibration, something to that effect that it's not, uh, it's, 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 the dog understands it as a warning and they get too far. So you can control them that way. But the, the, the real thing is I'm one of those that I always just let my dogs have the head, have their own head. Uh, they've got the nose. I don't. And again, it's, I learn more from the dogs than I've ever, uh, than anything I've read or anything else just by watching the dogs and, and letting them take me to birds. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, you got to trust your dog. They, they got bigger noses and they're a little bit more sophisticated when it comes to that sort of thing. Um, if you had to offer up one tip to rough grouse slash woodcock hunters, uh, you know, just what, one is, what is the biggest mistake you see out there or what is the thing you end up telling your clients to do most of the time that we haven't thought of? It really happens on the prairie as well as once our yeah. dogs are on point, is to be more aggressive on the flush. Thank you. <laughs> I'm a big believer, but carry on. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it, you know, and, and before we get out to hunt, whether it be new hunters or the, the most successful bird hunters that I have, you know, of guys that have hunted with me for enough years where once the dog is on point, they know enough to get to the dog and get past it because it's not going to happen under their nose. Uh, it's not going to happen 10 or 15 feet in front of them. It's going to happen 20, 30, 40, 50 yards out in front of them. And when they are less aggressive and stand back, the bird flushes and they're out of position to get a shot. Yeah. And that becomes the biggest, the biggest issue we deal with. And so the one thing I'm constantly telling people is you got to keep moving, move forward, get through the dog. And, you know, eventually they, they start to understand it. One nice thing that when, you know, when I'm in the grouse woods, my hunters can get into a position where they are in a spot where they can move the gun. So if they're 20, 30 yards on either side of me where the dog is at on point, when I go into flush and the bird gets high enough, the, they end up having a very high percentage shot on that bird, even though the, you're still in the grouse woods. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the other, I guess too, the other thing other than, and I see other people when, when they come in as they crowd the dog, when they come in to, to flush and in crowding the dog, especially in the grouse woods, you lose your field of vision. So if, if you don't, if a bird doesn't flush straight out in front of you, you're just going to be out of place. And that becomes an issue. I got to tell you one story and, and you can relate to this. You've been there and done that. Number one, I agree a hundred percent with, for, with all of that. I also agree. I also suggest, and you're the master on this, that a, a bird that's been pinned by a dog 
also responds better to a slightly more aggressive hunter walking in on it. I think they hold a little tighter when they can hear you slightly and know that something's coming at them. I'll leave that for discussion later, but I got to tell you the story. We were out in a at a great, incredible, semi-kind of private lodge making a show years ago, owned by an industry mogul. I'll just leave it at that. And one of the other hunters with us was that mogul's nephew, and he wasn't very experienced. Let's just leave it at that. My dog wasn't near as solid as he could have been at that point. I never are. You know that if you watch the show. But he finally slams a point, we're in open country, and the only hunter near my dog is this nephew who minces and tiptoes and sneaks around and tries, he's almost crawling on the ground, he wants to be so stealthy to get to this bird, but he's like 60 yards away when he starts this little process, and we're, we're all yelling at him. You know, by the time he gets close enough, our, we've all gone hoarse yelling at him to walk in onto that, <laughs> walk in on the bird and put it in the air. Of course, my dog's, you know, out of the corner of his eye for a while. You know, you know, your dogs, they're, they're, they're kind of, they're still on point, but they're looking for somebody to come in and take over here. And, yep. and finally he, he turns around and looks at this hunter and says, are you going to do it or am I? And, and that guy's <laughs> still 30 yards away. So he blows that bird out. And that's the end of it. <laughs> it it it's so you described the an everyday occurrence. Yeah, yeah, I bet. It, it and it does. It just and what it does if you if if you're aggressive and you go hard at the bird, you're going to cause them to flush. Yeah. If you tiptoe and you go in easy, they'll just walk away from you. Oh so, yeah. An, an interesting thing was a number of years ago we had the uh, the English Cocker Nationals Championship was at Little Moran in 2011. And so we always have wanted to have a, an English cocker hunt with our setters in the grouse woods, be able to get that bird in the air promptly. So off we went. We thought we had um, the world by the tail. We had a couple national champions, and we had some nice setters, and dogs would be on point. We'd send the cockers in, and, and the cockers would end up flushing the bird, but they still push the bird another 20 yards in front of the dog, which caused the bird to flush. We got the bird in the air, but the hunters were out of position. So it wasn't quite what we hoped it would be, but, uh, you know, it, it was a fun experiment and, you know, we shot a few birds, but, uh, you know, it just, just, you, you got to get them in the air because what ends up happening is this constant running, stopping and starting is, is like a pheasant down a cornrow and, and then the bird's going to flush out. And then that becomes a, that becomes more of a, a known for the bird they understand and realize run and flush run and flush and so that makes it even more difficult in the woods yeah we're creating a new race of pheasants that uh, that is smarter than us i'm afraid you're listening yeah, i to, totally agree you're listening to the upland nation podcast my friend steve grouseman grossman i'm scott linden i'm the guy who gets asked the dumb questions uh, it turns out some of them aren't so dumb but some of them are which leads me to this you mentioned cockers i love them and every time we have one on the tv show lynn sets about 20 yards away from the the pro guide and at one point in time he always gets this shot a cocker who's just had an incredible experience putting a bird in the air maybe brought it back but then he gets a running start and jumps into the arms of the handler i don't know any other dog breed that does that they are so grateful to be taken hunting um and maybe that's why you you've decided against it they're a little bit too enthusiastic but you hunt with with labradors sometimes do you do that in the in the grouse woods too 
Not in the grouse woods. Okay. I, you know, again, we tried it with the cockers, and the, we'll get the bird in the air, but the problem is once we get an, an aggressive dog encouraging the flush, uh, the, the hunters can't move with the dog as fast as, yeah. as the dog is going in, and yeah. so then the bird flushes and the hunters are out of, out of position. So I get it. Yeah, absolutely, and that it can be more and more of an issue. You know, yep. one, one of the things we're going to be talking about in, in, in upcoming weeks, uh, both on the podcast and uh, on, on my Facebook pages, is stealth and how we use that. We've talked about the kind of the polar opposite of stealth, which is walking in assertive is a good term for walking in on a on a bird yep. that's been you know pinned are there any times when stealth makes sense and i'm particularly thinking of sharp tails but it may be pheasants as well you know is it strategy is it quiet is it uh, the way we uh the way we approach a, a cover tell me about stealth in in your world the only time i would be stealth is if it's a point that that is a little bit I question whether the dog is pointing with his nose low to the ground or right underneath it. I'm fortunate my dogs for the 99.9% of the time in all these years, when it comes to a porcupine or a skunk will point it. Yeah. So if, if they're in a spot where, or even a snake, we had a couple snakes pointed this fall that when they point in a, in a brush pile or snowberry or buffalo berry, something isn't quite right. That's about the only time I go in stealth. Other than that, I'm still very aggressive every time when the bird, when the dogs are on point, cause I want to get that bird in the air and I don't want to waste time. Uh, you know, if a dog is already out there at hundred, 200 yards, by the time you get to them, the birds could have walked off. And at that point is what I'm telling my hunters, keep moving, got to keep moving. Sometimes the birds are flushing 60 to 80 yards in front of the dog. Yeah. Yeah, I wish my dog had a nose like that. But can you tell the difference between a porcupine point and a and a pheasant point? Not the difference in the point, but what alerts me is the location of the point and uh-huh. how the dog and how the dog is pointing. Knowing your dog, most of the times, you know, they've our dogs have got some, you know, they're they've got a very long nose, and so they're not going to be right up tight into a into a pile of buffalo berry or snowberry or plum thicket and point right in the middle of it. They, they'll wind them from a ways back. But all of a sudden, if they point right on top of something, that's typically not the norm. And most birds are not going to hold that tight for a bird to, for a dog to be right over the top of it. And when that happens, that, that concerns me about what they may be pointing. So then I'm a little bit more stealth mode that way. Yeah, you know, that is a great piece of advice it's it's all about what we perceive the distance of the point more than anything else i get it and and the uh, posture of the dog there you you go you know that's a big part of it so you know you know your you know your dog and you can understand it and read it and if you think you know mm, there's something here not yeah so that that gives me caution Oh, amen to that. And, you know, it, you know, it's so true. If if you know your dog well, you can tell the difference. It's absolutely correct. And I'm glad yeah. you brought it up. You know, I promised everybody we'd talk a little bit about pheasants, and we really haven't. But, yep. if, you know, you you started by telling us there were more birds than you uh, you, you thought there might be. And, and, and that's kind of one of the strangest things about South Dakota these days. And like I said, I've, I've, I was, I've been hunting there for 15 years, and I, I worked really closely with them for many of those years they stopped putting out their 
their bird population forecasts. And, and, you know, you could look at that as a cynic and say, well, they just don't want to discourage you from coming no matter what the numbers tell us. You think we did all right this year in terms of populations. Uh, what, what kind of indications uh, did you have for pheasants that, that led you to that? Well, I was out here, you know, in western South Dakota with some prairie dog hunters earlier in the summer, so I got a chance to do some morning drives, and you'd see enough birds that gave you a, you know, that, that it was nice to see. And then late in the year, again, when we were out uh, coming out to uh, shoot uh, and hunt sharp tail and prairie grouse driving in certain areas we would end up seeing areas where we should see pheasant we saw pheasant not huge numbers there's a lot of there's still a lot of crops in the field and i think the numbers are good i expected i i didn't expect them to be quite this good from you know from the areas we're at out here west of pier but uh they, they are they're they're better than adequate and the reason, and where I'm basing that on, years ago when I was up uh, on the Cheyenne uh, Reservation guiding up uh, northwest of here, in 2017 we had a bad drought, and the pheasant really took it hard. And uh, it's been a slow comeback in some of those areas. But with that in my in my in the back of my mind, the birds came through this far better than that I anticipated. And a lot of it is due to the ranchers and the, the guys that have uh, plenty of water or enough water for those birds to survive on in the potholes and the dugouts and, you know, the, uh, the dams, et cetera. Uh, I think that's a, I think that's a huge, that is a huge deal that they had enough access to water. And there were plenty of grasshoppers. So there are plenty of crickets, grasshoppers, bugs, uh, you know, so there was, there was good bugs for the young birds to feed on and, and uh, so it was surprisingly better than I would have guessed it may have been. You know, and I'm, I'm having the same experience. Our, se- our season is still in full swing, but by that I mean mainly desert birds, a few pheasants here and there. But we've had a very similar pattern here. Uh, drought, of course, uh, little patches of water here and there, finding birds near the water, depending on the birds you're chasing but a lot of bugs and you know in in the places where there wasn't enough other kinds of feed that's what we're finding in the crops of chuckers and huns and and quail uh even so uh good stuff uh i know you're winding down you're always a resource steve grouse man grossman um steve if they want to learn more about your operations what's the best address on the world wide web for them the best would be uh, just go to thegrouselodge.com. Thegrouselodge.com. Learn more about his operation, both uh, rough grouse and woodcock, and then all those prairie grouse and pheasants as well in some incredible country. I know it pretty well. Haven't been to your lodge yet, Steve. But as always, thanks for being a part of the Upland Nation podcast. Yeah, it's always fun to visit with you, Scott. Thank you. And while Steve is now going to put his feet up for the day, I hope he sure deserves it. We've got a lot more to talk about. I'm going to tell you what happened on a recent chucker hunt. Maybe you'll learn something about it. And speaking of learning, uh, a lot of folks responded to a request on the Facebook page about what you learned. And you might find out something there that you can apply to your own hunting or your own dog. And a new prize in the Upland Nation Puzzler Quiz. So that's all coming up right after I talk to you a little bit about HappyJackInc.com. 
You know, that hunt I was, the hunt I'm going to talk about soon, um, I used so many of their products for so many reasons. Happyjackinc.com is where you learn all about these. And let's see if I can do them in order. Pad coat, put that on Flick's feet every morning before we hunted. I, I am convinced that it makes those pads more supple. I'm not going to bore you with the lecture on suppleness versus calloused and hard, tough. But um, maybe I'll write about that down the road. At the end of the day, I found a few scrapes. So I sprayed some seal and heel on those, kept them nice and safe and covered, breathable and Flick wasn't licking off all of the, you know, he wasn't licking them and worrying them, if you will. DD33, we're in a kind of a ticky place for quail one day, so I sprayed that on him. And then at the end of every day, his pads got a little spray of the Happy Jack skin balm just to make them feel a little bit better at the end of the day. Soothe them a little bit, maybe a little bit more moisture in there. And and moisture, I think, is a pad's best friends. Uh, maybe we'll do a whole podcast on pad care someday with a veterinarian. But they all worked for me. They all worked for Flick. HappyJackinc.com is where you learn more about all those products. And um, speaking of that trip, very dry, very hot. In fact, all the water sources we typically find on that hunt were dry, bone dry. Luckily, roughlandkennels.com not only makes the world's first performance kennels for your dog, they make all sorts of other great roto-molded products, including their water topper. That's the one I've raved about before. It can go on top of your roughland kennel holds nine gallons of water and you can you can plumb it in a way so you can spray your dogs off at the end of the hunt if it's hot you can refill every water bottle you have and still have plenty left we almost emptied it once but that's because i forgot to top it off that morning and then when the dogs come back to the truck before we do at the end of a hunt their water haul product water hole product is is one of those spill proof kind of things you can set upright or you can set sideways carried in the truck i set it out by the back tire so that when the dogs get back to the truck before we do they can have a drink even before we get there and open the back of the truck learn more about all of the accessories at roughlandkennels.com Now it's time to go on a short adventure. I hope you will join me for what I like to think was a heck of a time. Learned something as well. Maybe you will too. Good buddy Tom told you about him in the past. We decided to look at some spots in, a, in an area I, I, I visit a lot, the Steens Mountains in southeast uh, Oregon. Uh, one of the funny parts, though, is I have driven past this first place we went. 25 years on the way to a fishing spot i've never thought about it as a hunting spot for a bunch of reasons the first is too many juniper trees second is it is the most daunting slope i've ever climbed i think i get this right I, i'm sure I, I'm, I don't get it completely but i think if you're judging uh inclines 45% incline is, is about, you know, pretty steep. 90%, I think, no, 100%. Anyway, straight up and down is 100, 50 is halfway, 
etc. This one was way more than half. You, you were climbing on hands and knees quite often. But Tom had been there the week before, and he insisted that it was worth the climb. We watered up, tightened our boot laces, and started fighting our way to um, the high spot, right at the bottom of that juniper line, uh, which ended up being about 6,700 feet. So we're out from the valley floor climbing up uh, basically lava rock, uh, giant boulders, um, lots of those long strips that come down from the summit. They're, you know, 10 to 50 feet wide, and they're basically like a giant had dumped a bunch of rocks on them. And so we would have to cross those every 100 yards or so. Man, my feet hurt just talking about it again. And in between, there's sagebrush, there's cheatgrass, lots of cheatgrass, there's draws and canyons and everything else. So we're, you know, my baseball catcher knees are starting to tell me that they'd rather be down at the bottom drinking soda but we're going across that and tom's about you know 100 yards above me and that's how we hunt chuckers a lot of times that way the guy on the bottom gets all the wild flushes and tom gets some of the shots when he's below them and the dogs are working well and in fact pretty soon there's flick on a point and he's pointing uphill I'm looking at Tom, and this is the first time I finally figured out to shut the hell up while I'm I'm doing this. I'm looking at Tom, and he's admiring the view, and he's watching his own dog, and I'm trying to get his attention without making any noise because we learned that the hard way earlier. So I'm waving. I'm taking my hat off. I'm waving. I don't have anything else I can do without spilling the beans, so I just cross my fingers and hope he gets it when I start moving with alacrity towards that pointing dog. And he is holding steady. These are birds that are notorious for chuckers. They're notorious for running out from under a point. Their self-defense mechanism is first run, second fly downhill and third flip you off as they're flying downhill but that's another story so so flick is just solid on these birds and and you can tell they're starting to move because he's kind of trembling he's kind of looking around to see if he's going to get any reinforcements tom is still blithely walking up the hill looking at his dog and admiring the view eventually he gets it and i'm further up towards the birds and he starts moving down towards it which is when they get up so 14, 15, 16 birds get in the air, and most of them go straight down the hill, right at me. Out of self-defense, I take a bead on one of those birds, pull the trigger. I look at Tom. He looks at me. I'm about ready to say, good shot, Tom. And he's saying to me, good shot, Scott. Of all those birds, we both shot at the same one. Well, it's happened before. It'll happen again. I got a great retrieve from Flick. That bird came in handy later in the day when we whiffed on other birds and Flick deserved a reward. So um, that bird did triple duty that day. And then two days later, it became a fajita. And ole, thank you, Chuckers. Thank you, Tom, for showing me that spot. And I think that's why eventually we will start talking more about stealth. I know I asked uh, Steve just a few minutes ago about it. We're going to do a whole talk on that at some point. In the meantime, we've got way more to talk about. It's coming up right after this. The Upland Nation Puzzler, a prize, a winner. 
and your answers to my question about what you learned recently. First, Dr. Tim's natural performance dog food is my go-to dog food. Flick looks like a rock star. He performs like one. I can't, I can't credit the food for the pads per se, but a great diet does all sorts of miraculous things for your dog's body and every part of that body. One of the most important things to look for is the ingredients. And you may not see enough of the information on the bag itself. So put it down, go to the website, find out what your dog food's ingredients look like. If on that ingredient list you find rendered fat, should be a red flag to you. Now, fat is critical to a dog. We all know that. It's the source of most energy, especially on a day-to-day, during-the-hunt basis. But you need the right kinds of fat. They need to be natural, and they need to be from a variety of marine and animal sources. Rendered fat, you know what rendering is. You cook it up, and then you scrape off the top. That's rendered fat. Now, if that's what they call it in your dog food, well, it could be anything from euthanized animals to roadkill and everything else in between. You want to put that in your dog's body? I didn't think so. Learn more about all the ingredients and where they came from at drtims.com. Hey, you get free delivery, 30% off your first order. Just use the code UPLANDNATION at drtims.com. And congratulations, Matt Templeton. You're the first winner in our Upland Nation Hustler quiz. Sending off your Pete boot dryer today. Thanks to everybody who participated over the month of October. It was a lot of fun. Some of the answers were great. One of the questions was, what's a ditch parrot? Matt answered that one with, of course, a ring neck pheasant. Here's the new puzzler for this week. The prize, a Chief Upland customizable front-loading technical upland hunting vest. Pretty cool. I'm looking at it now. A few bells and whistles, all sorts of ways to configure it for your own uh, particular hunting situation. If you have the answer to this question, message me on any of the Facebook pages. Look it up if you need to. Probably serve you well if you do. What is the definition of gastric volvulus? Just like it sounds, gastric volvulus. Hope you learned something from that one. I know I have in the past, and I hope you don't have to learn it the hard way. What is the definition of gastric volvulus? In November, I'll be handing out that chief Upland Customizable Technical Upland Hunting Vest. So I I really, I learn something every time I ask a question on Facebook, and and that's what we're going to talk about today, what you've learned and what I can thus share with everybody else. Whether it's about birds, dogs, habitat, strategy, tactics, or your hunting buddy, for me, driven home yet again 
the places you go to and then cross off your list forever always, always will lead you to places you'll visit for the rest of your hunting life. So don't get mad because you didn't find many birds or worse. Now you can leave that place alone and find some new places. Josh Glover says a dog can learn a lot in a short period of time, given the opportunity and bird exposure. Spending a week on the road chasing birds does dog good and ourselves as well. Amen to that. Friend of the show, George Cummins says, I learned gas is higher at the pump than what the sign says. Yeah, that sucks. Miles Burdett says having big game tags can really stall out the start of the bird hunting season. Well... I know the solution to that, Miles. I don't think you'll like it, though. Jack Gable says the second shell in a side-by-side or an over and under is smarter when it's saved for the stay-behind bird. Man, did I learn that a couple times last week. And Scott Mendenhall says that me and my dog both don't like hunting in the heat. Isn't that the truth? Well, you all have my sympathy my admiration. I'm glad you're out doing it. That was the best part about it. So many people are getting out on a regular basis. It's that time of year. Don't you forget it. And if you're looking for more places, this part of the show is brought to you by findbirdhuntingspots.com. Growing every week over there because there's new material every week to help you find places to hunt training care for your dog as well it's all right there findbirdhuntingspots.com thank you for helping us grow that site and thank you for leaving a review at apple podcast and for listening of course appreciate your telling one friend that's how we grow and we're growing dramatically so spread the word if you can we're talking every day about something at the Wing Shooting USA and Upland Nation Facebook pages, so join the discussion. If you did leave a rating or a review, thank you. That's another way we grow. The more five-star reviews we get, the more listeners we get as well. Thank you again for listening. Thank you to all our sponsors. Until we meet again right here. I hope to see you on the road and in the field. I'm Scott Linden. 